coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Find out why everyone's just a little disappointed in bad luck, the bad security behind the Panama Papers leak, potentially, and a simple delete command that took out an entire hosting provider, plus a great batch of storage questions, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, episode 262 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on April 14th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. I would go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Yes. Hello, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, Alan. I like your nice bright shirt today. You've got you've always got great shirts, and it's got the nice FreeBSD logo on there too. And even though it's red on red, it still really pops. Yeah, they did a pretty good job with yeah, that. Yeah, they did. They must have a great printer. That is nice. Well, I know they went through quite a. They designed it and then found out it was really difficult to print, and then tried to do it anyway. And managed. They managed <laughs> to pull it off, but. I know the uh, the people organizing the Dev Summit in Sweden that year had uh, a lot of fun with the T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember the T-shirts didn't get there until the second day. <laughs> so, Alan, uh, did you notice that all of the news happened? Like, all of it? Like, there was so much news that we've actually yeah. we bumped stuff that we've been planning to talk about in this episode to a future episode because all of the news happened. Yeah, like, when I was sitting down to write two shows, it's usually a bit of a stretch to get enough content. Yeah. And I was like... I don't have time, but we, we probably could actually get three whole shows yeah, out of I the think amount so. of news that's happened in a little while. So you've decided to start us off with the bad lock vulnerability, which I don't well, really... we did hype it up quite a bit the other week. Hype, hype, hype. Yeah, which I don't really have... I hadn't had a chance to read a lot about. Now, you gave us the warning mm. that uh, bad lock was nigh, but uh, now we actually have details, correct? Yes, because uh, before we didn't know anything about what it was actually going to be. We were just told it was going to be really bad. It turns out not so much. Oh, okay, good. You know, uh, this is kind of a, a great example of why having marketing and a logo and a website for a vulnerability isn't necessarily a good thing. <laughs> it's true. They Especially did start when, early, didn't they? Yeah. They, you know, uh, we've seen some other ones like LogJam where it's got all the information you want, like what version of OSs are vulnerable and mm-hmm. how do I fix it? And mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's what you want from one of these vulnerability websites, not, oh, our company's working to solve this problem for you and we're working with Microsoft. And uh, Yeah. So the bad knock vulnerability was disclosed uh, on Tuesday, which was the 12th, as promised, after three weeks of lots of hype about it. As it turns out, it's not as bad as we were expecting. You know, we were kind of expecting remote code execution, take over every Windows and Samba box in the world. Yeah, that's you know, right. router is going to be vulnerable. And it turns out none of those things. Oh, okay. So, so a disappointing not actually good news. in the SMB protocol. You know, because the other thing we knew is that the flaw was in the protocol – and wasn't going to necessarily be an easy fix. Uh, but it turns out the flaw is not in the SMB protocol, but in the SAM and LSA protocols that uh, kind of work beside um, Oh, I see. Samba. Okay. So hmm. the flaw itself is identified as CVE 2016-2118, uh, but is actually related to a whole other slew of flaws that were also fixed. Importantly, it affects all versions of Samba clear back to 3.0, probably before that, but they don't bother going back that far because that mm. was a really long time ago. Yeah, and that's true. So they've released uh, Samba 4.4.2, 4.3.8, and 4.2.11 hmm. uh, to 
upgrade to, so you don't have to change major versions to upgrade. Mm. Uh, you can stay on the small version, uh, which is good. However, if you're using Semba 4.1 or less, then uh, those are out of support, and you should uh, have upgraded previously and really, really should upgrade now. Hmm. Boy, uh, I know I know places for a fact are still running on Samba 3. Well, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people running on 3.6 and so on, and that was discontinued uh, over a year ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know. But what am I going to go do? Rebuild my central file server because the Samba team is, you know, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, for the record, uh, Samba 3.0, the version that some of these vulnerabilities reach all the way back to, came out in uh, 2003 okay. and was discontinued in 2009. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think even I, I think, still have a server running Samba 3.6 somewhere. Yeah. Uh, which w- came out in 2011. Uh, and was uh, discontinued in uh, March of 2015. Hmm. Uh, 4.0 was discontinued in September of 2015, and uh, 4.1 was discontinued just uh, a couple of weeks ago, March 22nd. Uh, And even 4.2 is now down to security fixes only, so you probably want to be running at least 4.3, which is at least in maintenance mode. So no new features, but we'll get... uh, but non-security bug fixes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, 4.4 only came out March 22nd. So, you know, if you're risk-averse, you might, want, might not want to jump to that right away. Yeah. Anyway, back to the actual story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they say uh, make sure that you upgrade from, to at least 4.2. Um, and there's a link here to the Samba release planning page, which shows the support dates for all the different versions and so on. Uh, Sadly, they don't actually provide the discon- uh, discontinuation date ahead of time. It's just once they're uh, four, three or four releases ahead of it that they discontinue it. So oh, see, okay. Uh, 3.6 was discontinued because 4.4 came out. I see. And uh, 4.2 won't, or sorry, 4.1 was discontinued because 4.4 came out. Right. So 4.2 won't be discontinued until whenever 5.4 is released, which they don't know yet when that'll be. Um, and so it's, it's not like, you know, with previous year, or whatever, it's like, it's two years after the release that it stops being, supported. right. You know, something you could concretely plan around. Yeah. Uh, although, well, they have a fairly static release schedule. So, okay. Okay. Maybe a decent cadence. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, having a fixed date is more helpful ahead of time mm-hmm. planning mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, their biggest thing is that we can't support too many different versions at once. Yeah, I understand. So every time we release a new one, we Especially when you're chasing one. Microsoft changes. Right. Uh, so Microsoft released their patches for the vulnerability. Uh, turns out they only have one patch where, you know, Samba has like six. Um, so MS-16-047, uh, which is only rated as important, not critical. You know, we were kind of expecting mm. a much bigger deal than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think mostly because this requires a man-in-the-middle attack, and since you're not supposed to be using Samba... Over or, the internet. <laughs> or file sharing over the internet, that means someone has to be on your LAN already, and so that's a different level of attack than, uh, you know, remote code execution on right. every Windows That's where they really start, you know, firing off the red alarm. Uh, importantly, Microsoft did release, like, six critical updates not related to this that you really need to install. And it's partly, uh, you know, some commenters have said, it's kind of a shame that the bad lock and the flop of the hype for that might actually distract people from hurrying up to install these other patches that are unrelated. That oh, because this, because this has been branded as the uh, bad lock fix. And, yeah, and then 
uh, you know, Microsoft's like, oh, this one's not that, it's only important, not critical. You know, there's I no see. rush kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say no rush, but, you know, uh, you do still obviously want to, you know, deal with this. Uh, yeah, well, because it, it affects the, I mean, yeah, so the SAM this, database, it's, a, it's so uh, the, the evaluation of privilege vulnerability exists in the security account manager and local security authority. Uh, that seems like something you want fixed regardless of the yes. avenue they're exploiting it, yes, right? So it's, <laughs> it's just not as critical as we were led to believe. Right. They say uh, the bug in the SAM and LSA uh, could be exploited in a man-in-the-middle attack, forcing a downgrade of the authentication level of both channels to older-style authentication, which mm-hmm. is easier to break. Mm-hmm. Um, an attacker could then impersonate an authenticated user so right. and pretend to be somebody else. Uh, Microsoft was also careful to note that only appliances and products that use the SAM or LSA uh, remote protocols are affected by this issue. The SMB protocol itself is not vulnerable to anything at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, all Windows like products. The, most of the bad lock bugs were actually in Samba rather than in the SMB protocol like we were led to believe by the hype. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a bunch of these, uh, most of these other CVEs here only affect... Uh, Samba, and don't apply to Windows. Uh, and, you know, we were, you know, with the amount of, uh, that they were talking about, they were working with Microsoft, we really expected to see more things that actually affected everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Having having a vulnerability in the SAM database, yeah, it, it sounds like to yeah. me that it currently it's being exploited via Samba, but there could be other ways to exploit that same vulnerability. Well, well, currently, none of this is actually being exploited in the wild. Sure. Sure. But, uh, so about Samba, they say there are several man-in-the-middle attacks that can be performed against a variety of protocols used by Samba. Uh, these would permit execution of arbitrary Samba network calls using the context of the intercepted user. Mm. Uh, impact examples of intercepted administrator traffic include uh, if you're running a Samba Active Directory server, which I don't know how many people are using Samba to run their uh, AD domain, but you could view or modify secrets within an AD database, including users' password hashes, or shut down critical services. Hmm. So that's a big deal. If you man in the middle and, and intercept an administrator session, you could reset the password of some user so that you can then log in as them and, and do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, with a legitimate login even, right? Because you actually have the password because you wow. changed the password hash. I have not been to the Samba.org website in about eight years. Yeah. <laughs> it does not look that great. But there you go. It looks like it was updated, but totally to the wrong target yeah like they updated it to a different older look like look how yeah. look at all that white space on the page there on the side well, not just but like the the buttons that fade out that's like so front page or something yeah. yeah it's so front page yeah You're so right yeah yeah it's weird it's weird because their website wasn't like i mean their website wasn't great before but it was almost better well, their than... website at least looked like unixy before yeah exactly yeah it looked like a, it looked like a unix project yeah uh Anyway, so they have the list of other CVEs that were fixed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2015-5370, which affects Samba 3.6 through 4.4. Errors in the Samba DCE RPC code can lead to a denial of service, which will either crash or cause uh, high CPU consumption in the Samba daemon, and a man-in-the-middle attack. It is unlikely but not impossible to trigger remote code execution, which may result in the uh, impersonation on the client side. Mm, that's no good. So, you know, there's, you know, if they try really hard, maybe somebody could figure out a way to do remote execution with this, mm-hmm. but it only affects Samba, not Windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, CVE 2016-2110 uh, 
uh, which affects Samba 3 through 4.4. Four. Uh, this feature negotiates uh, uh, the feature negotiation of NTLM SSP is not downgrade protected. A man in the middle is able to clear even required flags, especially the uh, NTLM SSP negotiate sign and negotiate seal, uh, which uh, has implications for encrypted LDAP traffic as well. Hmm. So a man in the middle can basically get rid of most of the encryption, which is not how that should work. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2111 is also Samba 3 through 44. Uh, when Samba is configured as a domain controller, it allows remote attackers to spoof the computer name of a secure channel's endpoint and obtain sensitive session information by running a crafted application and leveraging the ability to sniff network traffic. Wow. Uh, 2112, also Samba 3 through 44, a man in the middle is able to downgrade LDAP connections to no integrity protection. It's possible to attack the client and server with this so that you could basically make it connect to your LDAP server and... Mm-hmm. Where you get, provide users that you have the password yeah, Right, get your, yeah, your wrong username and password database. Yep. Uh, 2113 uh, affects Samba 4 through 44. Uh, Man-in-the-middle attacks are possible for client-triggered LDAP connections with LDAP-S and the NCACN HTTP connections, which are HTTPS. So uh, if the client forces this, uh, makes if the client causes the server to make a connection to LDAP or HTTP, mm-hmm. uh a man-in-the-middle attack can force that to be not encrypted instead of encrypted like it should be. Uh, 2114, uh, which affects Samba 4 through 44. Due to a bug in uh, Samba, it doesn't enforce requiring SMB signing, even if explicitly configured to require. Wow. In addition to the default uh, for the Active Directory domain controller case was also wrong. So, so server signing equal mandatory, not enforced. Yeah. And also... If you were an Active Directory domain controller, that was supposed to be the default, and it wasn't. Mm. Uh, and 2115, uh, the, which affects Samba 3 through 44, uh, the protection of DCE RPC communications over the NCACNNP, which is the default for most file server related protocols, is inherited from the underlying SMB connection. Samba doesn't enforce SMB signing of any kind on SMB connections by default, which makes man in the middle attacks possible. So if you if you were an attacker and you were fortunate enough to have a Samba powered Actual Directory domain, you could own that entire network. You could you could pose as a client to get channel and session information. You could point people to your your LDAP directory to authenticate any user you want. You could make the admin yeah. you could make the administrator password of the domain anything you want if you're pointing at your own if LDAP. If you sit in the right spot, you can also intercept the tra- regular traffic to the real Windows domain controller, hijack the session, and overwrite passwords. Although part of the question is, how do you actually get to be a man in the middle of a network like this? Like, unless you're compromised to switch and set up a mirror port or something, the switch is mostly going to send this traffic directly between the client and server. Yeah. So I, unless you're, like, infecting the machine of the administrator so you can snoop his traffic or infecting the server. Yeah, I agree. The, I think the most common use case for these exploits is during a vulnerability assessment, the penetration tester is going to have a heyday, and they're going to fail their assessment. That's the most common use well, for these exploits. Like, unless you actually are managing to actually put yourself in the middle of a LAN connection, it'll be fairly difficult to pull mm-hmm. someone's off. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying impossible. These definitely right. Yeah, you could, especially if you got remote access to a machine that's on the LAN. Yeah. Uh, because in, in that case, you know, it's not so much a man in the middle because it's before it leaves the one machine. But, yeah, there's uh, – but the big thing is that, you know, with Badlock, the hype, we were told, you know, it's a problem with the protocol. And so Microsoft has to fix it too. 
and it turns out almost all the vulnerabilities are actually in Samba and have been around for a really long time. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know. Well, there was, I think there were some tweets originally that have been since deleted where the guy was like, oh, yeah, this, you know, it's good PR for our company as well. I uh, feel bad because it's an enterprise version of Samba. And, you know, yeah. we are on this show all the time telling people to patch your S. And I realized I, I think I'm one of these people now. I think I have a Samba 3.6 system somewhere around here that's yeah. running. And I, I don't think it's on maybe it's Samba 4 just because that was what was in the repo. But I think it's an older yeah, version of Samba. The biggest question there is really. I wonder how big of the config file changes were between three and four. Yeah, yeah. Must not have been that's huge. What but gates me, you know, when it when it's a small upgrade, and you know, none of the if if my config if I just uninstall the old version, install the new version, and my config file works, sure. Uh, but when it doesn't, it's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. well, any other thoughts on that story, Mister yep. Judon? Uh, so threat post uh, has a talk about you saying you know the bad log vulnerability falls flat against its hype. They specifically says, as it turns out, bad luck was hardly the remote code execution monster many had anticipated. Instead, it's a man in the middle and denial of service bug and allowing an t- attacker to uh, elevate privileges or crash a Windows machine running Samba services. They also have a quote here say, uh, Red Hat security analysts uh, said bad luck could have been much worse, especially if it turned out to be memory corruption issues in SMB, as some had uh, surmised. In such a scenario, it would have uh, been a cleared path to remote code execution, mm. and it would have been terrible. Especially since you know there's versions of there are old versions of Samba bundled into your router, yeah, yeah. yes, printer sharing, yes, file sharing. That's what we were really worried about. Yeah, and you know all of these attacks are still possible. That, well, not all of them. Uh, the ones that require you to run a domain controller. There's probably not a domain controller running out of Samba three in the, that's installed in your uh, smart TV. But right. you know an unsupported version of Samba is there. But it's not remote code execution where somebody's going to be able to take over your TV. Hey, what about this new domain, sadlock.org? Yes. Instead of badlock, uh, it's sadlock. Yeah. So they, they <laughs> basically copied the website, which was allowed, except they changed the logo by adding some tears to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just uh, stroked out the word badlock and replaced it with sadlock. And they're like, engineers and marketers worked together for three weeks to get this problem fixed. No. Uh, solved? No. Marketed. There you go. That's pretty <laughs> good. Like, sadlock. You know, if you're running Samba 4.1 or below... We'll just get patched. It's like, no, but you can buy support from somebody who will do it for, you know, about the price of getting your Windows XP updates. Well, that just goes to show you that if you hype it up, Alan, the public wants their bug to deliver. Yeah. And now we're disappointed in Sadlock. Although I'm glad it's not a major issue, really, to be honest with you. It's the best kind of disappointment. (laughs) Yes. In this case, we we were saved (laughs) by Mm -hmm. uh, Sadlock. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Any other thoughts on that story there? Uh, no, it's a book for that one. All right, check out all the links Alan has in the show notes for for more information on that. And uh, if you thought maybe you heard your version of Samba you have in production mentioned there, I would check out the notes because it's all outlined in yeah. the links. Uh, every version is vulnerable, so you need to install a patch. Uh, yeah, yeah. At yeah. least newer than Tuesday. Yeah. All right. Well, then I'll take a moment and tell you about our friends over at Ting. Go there by going to techsnap.ting.com to support the show and get yourself a discount. Ting is simple. It's a wireless service that has CDMA or GSM. You get to pick. No contracts, no early termination fees, and it's a flat $6. $6 for the line, and then it's just your usage on top of that. You use a few minutes, you pay for a few minutes. You use a lot of minutes, you pay for a lot of minutes. It's a really nice system because – 
it's the way things probably should have just been from the beginning. It's just before they ever got a chance to launch it, there was all these marketing and business school genius ideas on how to get you to pay for stuff you don't need. And they have great customer service with real human beings. They'll take care of you. A fantastic dashboard to control all of it, like the best in the biz. And you can check a little bit. They have a demo on their website. <clears throat> they have a savings calculator to give you an idea of how much you might save by switching to Tang. I really like the, the choice of GSM or CDMA because, honestly, in the Pacific Northwest, there are areas where CDMA just has a better signal than GSM. <gasps> what? What? But, Chris, GSM is amazing. Yeah, and when I, sometimes I go places where GSM is better and I can switch over. I've got the Nexus 5 back from Noah. He brought it back with him. Uh, when he's out here visiting. Um, and uh, I love the Nexus 5 because I can bounce around between CDMA and GSM. And you, that also gives you a whole range of devices that are compatible, which is really nice because then they'll give you service credit. No contract means you bring something over, activate it, give it life, something that maybe you weren't using as much anymore. Check out their blog, too. Like They have uh, like a great series right now on... Being a uh, being like a, a leaser of the network versus a creator of the network, they title it, does Ting prefer to own the network or light the network? I thought that was kind of a – it's a cool series. They'll also just sell you a SIM card if you've got a device you want to pop a SIM into. Uh, they have data available as well. I'm going on a road trip here in a couple of days to go pick up ham radio from Idaho. Mm-hmm. And I'll be bringing my, uh, my Ting MiFi, the Netgear Zing. And the thing I've mentioned before that I like about this is right here on the touchscreen, I can see how many people are connected and I can – Disconnect people from my Wi-Fi right there on the device. Get off! <laughs> so I've, I've used a similar device, but all the buttons were in Japanese, so I didn't know what they did. <laughs> so I, I, I could see how many people were connected, yeah. but I didn't know how to use any of the other buttons. <laughs> yeah, well, thankfully, this one's in English. Uh, yeah. Now, here's what's cool about this, right? If you go to techsnap.ting.com, you can get this thing for 139 bucks. No contract. And what I do is when I don't use it, I just turn it off. I can just turn the whole line off. I just literally turn off service for it, and then I log back in, I turn service back on when I need it. It's brilliant. It's a great way to get data and for me it means next month maybe my bill will be I don't know 15 bucks higher maybe and then for 10 more months nothing and then one month I'll get another 15 bucks. It just it works out awesomely in the end for me and it can work out great for you. Go to techsnap.ting.com and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Techsnap.ting.com go check them out. They got Sims all the way up to the bestest and nicest Android devices. So uh, I think this next story is undoubtedly got to have a huge tech angle that we are only beginning to see rumors and possible conjecture about the tech angle. But everybody listening has probably at least, at least by this point heard the name Panama Papers. Yep. And uh, it's like a, there's been a series of leaks recently, Alan. It's fascinating. Yes. Uh, well, one of the interesting things is uh, some countries tried to block this. And I saw a screenshot. I'm not sure which country it was from. But you couldn't search for Panama Canal because <laughs> of their attempt to block you from looking nice. up this Panama paper. That'll solve it. No problem solved. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, 11 million documents were leaked from one of the world's most secretive companies, the Panamanian law firm Masek Fonseca, uh, which in the documents show how the law firm basically helped clients set up shell companies and dummy accounts and so on to help their clients launder money, uh, dodge uh, sanctions, and avoid tax. So, you know, uh, when the U.S. puts sanctions against Russia or whatever to stop uh, Russian generals from moving money around, you know, other banks or, you know, these were uh, U.N. sanctions, right? So the banks are supposed to not deal with these people's money mm-hmm. and let them move money around. But yet, papers reveal, uh, turns out, if you just do it through a few firms, shell companies. Yeah, then, then the sanction, they don't know it's your money, so the, mm-hmm. the sanction doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Also, they note that the documents show at least 12 current or former heads of state and at least 60 people linked to current or former heads of states have information in the data. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, the prime minister of Iceland has already been forced to resign over it. Mm -hmm. Uh, David Cameron's taken a public beating for it. Yep. Uh, Although, uh, you know, we'll get to that in a sec. Uh, The 11 million documents uh, were at the law firms on their computers and they were passed to a German newspaper, which then shared them with an international consortium of investigative journalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, BBC Panorama was among the 107 different organizations, including the UK newspaper The Guardian, which you remember from the uh, Snowden leaks, Snowden leaks uh, across 76 different countries, which have been analyzing the documents. So when the CBC got them, uh, they quickly went through and found all Canadians involved in it, <laughs> but they purposely didn't publish the list of names. Mm. Uh, because just because you have an offshore account doesn't mean you're dodging tax or doing something illegal. Right, sure. You know, having an offshore account is not illegal. Yeah. You might just you be know, hiding money from your wife. Do. Well, uh, you know, that would Maybe you're buying and selling price. stocks under a different name or account. You know, just, just simple reasons like that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, so, you know, you, just because somebody has an offshore account doesn't necessarily mean they're doing yeah. something illegal. Yeah, I, though, I did read there's like there's, – there's only like a handful of legitimate reasons really. There's really not a lot of legitimate reasons. Uh, I, th- I read three compelling reasons for having an offshore account. And then beyond that, it gets pretty great pretty quick. That's from what I and you know what do I know? Because I don't I don't. It's never been a problem for me. I hide my money in Bitcoin, uh, but it, for that kind of thing, it seems like a lot of the cases are not legit. Like a big percentage of the cases, are not all that legit. Um, they say there are many conspiracy theories about the source of the Panama Papers leaks. Uh, you know, one of the prominent ones tries to blame the CIA and so on. Uh, I don't know. Seems like it was obvious that these were taken by someone who broke into their computer system. Well, um, it's not clear whether they were targeted or if they just kind of found this stuff, right? Mm. You know, you have to know a little bit about the whole world of offshore money stuff to know to target this law firm. Mm. But uh, Bradley Birkenfeld, who is uh, apparently known as the most significant financial whistleblower of all time, uh, he has his opinions about who's responsible for leaking the Panama Papers and rattling the financial and political power centers around the world. Uh, for example, I know, um, I think, two banks in Canada have already been given large fines by the government and are, hmm. you know, had publicly had to come out and promise to investigate what's going on and make hmm. sure they weren't doing anything wrong. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And then WikiLeaks has also gotten attention, apparently blaming USAID. What's, I don't know what USAID, uh, it's a State Department-funded uh, I- 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 initiatives. Uh, department and then uh, George Soros uh, mm. for the leaks, a large Democrat financer. Yes. Yeah, well, uh, unclear where they would get that from or why they would blame those people, but uh, I don't know. In Canada, uh, previous to these leaks, we were already uh, stepping up enforcement of people dodging taxes, and so now it's just gotten bigger. They <clears throat> uh, say so what little is known about the source of leaks comes from the details published by the German newspaper. Uh, it seems that they got this information in 2014. Yeah, I've, I I was following the Times of India and their acquisition of it, and apparently the Times of India got it. Well, at least from my from my tracking, 11 months ago is what I could confirm as a date. Right. And they were using like a full on web portal to log in and check documents in and out over Tor. Like it was it was interesting because they showed some video of the process and. Uh, 
Yeah, they created a, basically a document portal after they'd screen the documents. They would publish it to there, and then the different journalists would check them in and out over this website that was hidden on Tor. Yeah, well, you know, uh, in this particular case, you're going against, you know, very powerful people in governments <laughs> that really don't want this information to get out. Mm-hmm. And some of those governments are perfectly happy to murder journalists. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can see why they uh, maybe made sure they had all their ducks in a row before releasing this and so on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, when communicating with the leaker back in 2014, uh, the his or her person said that they were in danger uh, of their life, but they had this uh, data from the law firm and they wanted to share it. Uh, they asked how much data they had and the source said more than you have ever seen. Hmm. Now, you know, in, the, in terms of the number of gigabytes, maybe not that much, but because it's mostly text and, and you know, documents, it's a lot of data. Um, you know, 11 million documents is a lot of data. I believe it was like 2.26 terabytes or something like that. Possibly. Uh, so we don't know how they got the information. It obviously could have been an insider as well. Uh, but recently that's caused people to start looking at the website and the, the customer portal that the Mossack Fonseca company had. And there were many, many security flaws there. So it turns out maybe people shouldn't have been trusting this company quite so Oh, much. boy. Uh, yeah, the front-end computer systems are outdated and riddled with security flaws. For example, their uh, client portal is vulnerable to the Drown attack, a security exploit that targets servers that support the obsolete SSL v2. Right. So you could, uh, if you were man in the middling against the people, the people logging in to check on their offshore accounts, uh, you could downgrade them to SSL v2, and then you know use some GPUs over Amazon to decrypt their traffic and, hmm. and steal their password or whatever. Hmm. Uh, the portal which run on Drupal, which is an open-source CMS, uh, appears to be last updated in August of 2013, according to the site's change log. Oh, that's old. That's old for Drupal. That's not yes, good. That's terrible. On its main site, Mossack Fonseca claims its client information portal provides a secure online account, mm. uh, allowing customers to access corporate information anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> the version of Drupal used by the portal has at least 25 known vulnerabilities, including some high-risk SQL injection vulnerabilities that allow anyone to remotely execute arbitrary commands. I think we told you about these ex- that exploit in Drupal uh, when it came out on TechSnap. Mm-hmm. Uh, areas of the portal's backend can also be accessed by guessing the URL structure uh, in a bunch of places. You know, Because it's typical Drupal and so on, you can kind of guess where some of it is. Uh, they also say uh, Mossack Fonseca's webmail system, uh, which runs a version of Microsoft's Outlook Web Access, was last updated in 2009. Mm. And the main site runs a version of WordPress that is at least three months out of date. Uh, in particular, in one of the links further down, um, we mentioned that um, the way they figured out the version of WordPress was that old was uh, one of the JavaScript files, uh, I think the autosave.js or something, um, they could diff it against the version in various releases of WordPress until they found the one where there was no diff. And they're like, ha-ha. <laughs> That's an interesting way to actually be able to tell what the remote version of WordPress is actually running is by just you know, looking at some files that ship with WordPress that are public. Right? There's not, right? You can't see the source of the PHP files, but the source of most of the JavaScript files are just out there for you. Right? Mm-hmm. Huh. 
Although some of them get minified, so it's hard to say. But anyway, yeah. uh, a further vulnerability makes it possible to easily access files uploaded to the back end of uh, most like Fonseca's site simply by guessing the URL. Uh, you know, obviously, if you go to a WordPress site and it's like slash wp content slash uploads, and they don't have directory listings turned off, then you can see every file that's been uploaded. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Uh, they say uh, most like Fonseca's emails were also not transport encrypted. So any emails sent to them uh, would have been in, in plain text, not over TLS. Uh, and, you know, obviously from this data dump, they weren't cr- encrypted during while they're being stored either because this guy, uh, the attacker managed to just do that. Uh, and then we have lots of uh, related links about uh, things, you know, there's hmm. uh, who leaked the Panama Papers over at Boing Boing. Yeah, that's uh, lots of speculation. The WikiLeaks accusations from Daily Color. Uh, Wired has their talk about the security flaws in the website. Uh, also the Register and Forbes and WordFence and Slashdot. Yeah. yeah. Every, uh, and also, and too, if you're curious about the media's coverage of it, we've been, for the last two episodes of Unfilter, we've been playing all of the clips we could find about it. And some of them are very interesting, very revealing. And uh, so the last two weeks of Unfilter have all of that, too. You can check out. Yep. Wow. The Panama Papers is big. I have a feeling that there's a lot that's going to still come. And I'm hopeful. Well, yeah. You know, they've been – obviously, you know, journalists have been going through them for yeah. a year now. Yeah. But with 11 million documents, it's pretty hard. I, I'm hopeful that we'll get more about how it happened, maybe, security-wise. Because that – I mean, you look at um, that website. Like, we would, we would like that. But obviously, the person mm-hmm. who did the leaking Not gonna, would yeah. – would, be in big trouble, you know. I know, I know. I, know. Uh, I can dream, though. I, I, a boy I'm, can I'm dream. definitely guessing that they wouldn't be able to pull a Snowden and go to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Bad now. No, nope, no, nope, that's for uh, sure. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe well, Canada can offer asylum to whoever it was. Yeah, maybe. All right, well, then I'm going to give asylum to IX Systems right here on the TechSnap program, ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. You should give them a little asylum, too, in your data center. They have great rigs built around those Intel processors for any workload you're going to throw at it from high-end, from super high-end, to even way down to your small business or home office. Start by going to ixsystems.com slash TechSnap, learn more about them, and support the show by visiting that landing page, and then dig around and look at some of their great products they have over there. I think you will be very impressed once you engage with IX. My first experience, I'll be completely honest with you, my first experience was I was to engage as a customer. I had followed them for a while, but when I was going to buy, I think, my first free NAS from them, I was buying it for myself. And I, I just wanted to go to the website, click buy, and not talk to anybody. But I ended up going through the process where I sent them in a question and somebody got a hold of me, and it started a conversation that ended up saving me some money and really set a very good first impression. This is really, you think, before they were even a sponsor, if I recall, but I don't recall mm-hmm. clearly. Uh, and um, I, was, I, I remember walking away from that going, they just lost a little bit of money, but saved me a whole bunch of time and trouble. Of course I would go back. And I think if each of you gave them a chance and tried it, you would be impressed with everything from beginning with the with – the, Welcome. Thanks for calling IX Systems from that process all the way to once you've received your burnt-in tested rig from IX Systems that's been built for you. They have a great staff, a great team, and great hardware built around some great processors by Intel. Alan, I don't know if you have any new rigs to share with the class, but... Uh, just the, the video machines I got, uh, yeah. the video transcoders. How is that going, are, that project? They're all up and running now. It's great. Uh, you know, they... Did a great job of getting them all pre-configured for me, so they went straight to the data center, went in, and just worked. Good to go. Uh, 
save me a huge amount of hassle. Yeah. You know, at the you know at the data center for Portland, it's you're pretty much down to depending on a friend who lives in Portland having spare time to be able to go there and do stuff <laughs> if, if if something doesn't work. Yeah. So uh, having IX have it all pre-staged so that the machine just had to be plugged in and it worked was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, other data centers we can get help, but it costs money, and uh, when it can just be thrown in the rack and it just works, it's so much. Plus, nicer. it's standardized. Yeah. This is nice. Uh, you know, and they can go. Uh, we needed non-default BIOS settings uh, to enable this. Normally, the GPU built into the processor is disabled because you have an actual video card that's the one they use for the remote management stuff. Uh, and most times, you don't want that extra video card getting in the way and confusing things. But we need it turned on for video transcoding, right? And so, you know, on our little worksheet, we're like, hey, in the BIOS, set this setting for us. Uh, and they did that. And, you know, that way, as soon as we booted things up, it just worked. I also noticed they have a blog post up about Badlock, which is nice, you know, because you get something on there that gets a lot of attention, and IX well, Systems customers are running. be a assembly domain controller. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So it's really cool they got that info out there. Check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap, and a really big thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program, and I believe I will be seeing some of them soon at Linux Fest Northwest which is pretty cool. I'm excited yep, about that. people there. I think this next story might be the favorite one of the chat room and the subreddit today. Uh, a lot of people are talking about... I have a little conspiracy theory at the bottom of the story, too. Oh, I love it. So, okay. The headline that Alan wrote in here is, I accidentally RM-RF'd and destroyed my entire company. <laughs> so, he basically deleted the root directory, <laughs> and things went downhill well, from there. Surprise, surprise. Yes. So, well, in particular... Uh, the tweet that started all this, I saw somebody uh, tweeting about the story and saying, you know, uh, it takes automation to destroy 1,535 customers all at once. True, true, true. Yeah, that's that's real scale. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the quote from the uh, article here is, I run a small hosting provider with more or less 1,535 customers, and I use Ansible to automate some operations to be run on all the servers. Last night, I accidentally ran on all the servers a bash script, which did an RMRF of foo slash bar, uh, with those variables being undefined due to a bug uh, in the code in a couple of lines above. What could go wrong? So when those two variables evaluated nothing, that left you with RM minus RF slash. Mm. This is the same mistake that the Steam client made on Linux. Remember when oh, yes. Steam was deleting all your stuff? I do recall. Uh, Red Hat had an unreleased package for... Oh, and you know, you it's, um, later in the story, we link to an uh, episode of BSD Now where we hear a story about uh, SunOS doing the same thing back in the day. All right, so right? okay, if you install a patch, it would delete your operating system, <laughs> and and it starts the whole discussion about why is that even a thing? Yeah. <laughs> so they say uh, all servers got deleted. The big problem here is they're offsite backups too. Because the remote storage that held their offsite backups was mounted on the machine right. at the time, because the script that was running through Ansible was their backup script, oh. which mounted their uh, backups to mm. a directory and then copied files to mm. it. Uh, well, the first thing is that's a copy, not a backup. Right. That's what you're doing. Right. That's that's the first big thing, is because you know to be a backup, what you need is multiple points in time. Uh, although maybe they, you know if you did it right, maybe you would have that. But if you're just mounting the directory like that, you're just opening yourself up to exactly this problem. 
Uh, anyway, the guy who did it goes on to say, uh, all servers got deleted in the offsite backups too because the remote monitor. He says, how can I recover from an RM minus RF slash in a timely manner? Uh, in general, well, you just deleted all the files. Now, you haven't written much data to the drive yet, so maybe a bunch of them are still there. Um, you know, if it was me and it was the, you know, I would have had backups, but uh, I would say, you know, power off and get the drives to somebody like Drive Savers and see if they can recover. Uh, in particular, you know, depends what file system you're using and a bunch of other things. Sure. Uh, and then it says, uh, but I go on to say, this is why you need backups. Backups are not just a single copy of your files in some other location. You need time series data and in, you know, you don't want it to be mounted, right? The whole point of your backup is you need it to be read-only because maybe in this case it was you that made the mistake, but what if it was an attacker who got in and deleted stuff? Maybe, you know, they can't RM minus RF slash or whatever, but maybe they can RM slash backup slash star mm. or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So you definitely don't want to have, if backup is only one copy, that's not good enough. You know, what if it turns out you, there was a problem and you didn't find the problem until after your most recent backup? You need to be able to go back two or three backups to get stuff, um, right? That's the whole point of having you know incremental backups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, backup system was obviously badly designed. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I have a very similar story. Oh, really? Just with a happy ending. Okay, of good. Okay, good. Um, well, cleaning up after. Uh, so I used to run a, a shell provider, which basically we sold SSH accounts to people. Mm-hmm. And so some of those people were turned out to be not very nice. Surprise. And one of them attempted to use an exploit to take over the machine. Oh. Of course, being a script key wasn't very smart. <laughs> Tried to use a Linux kernel exploit against my previous <laughs> So it didn't really get him anywhere. No. <laughs> uh, but when I was cleaning up after them, they had, had uh, part of the exploit involved a sim link to slash with a weird name with a bunch of special characters in it. Hmm. And so it was very hard to type. Right, because you have to like escape all the. So I used tab complete to do it, and uh, when you do that, it put the slash after the name of the sim link. So I did rm minus rf blah 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 tab, and it put the slash at the end, which made it delete slash instead of the sim link, right? Because mm-hmm. it deletes the target of the sim link instead of the sim link when you put the slash at the end, because you're treating it like a directory. Um, so you know the first mistake was me. Why was I using minus r if I was trying to delete one file, right? You know, yeah. at the time it was just finger memory because right. every time you try to delete something, you always like, oh, type you it in there. I, I might honestly do it too. Yeah. So yeah. exactly, yeah. How, how often does do people use minus r when they're deleting one file? Way too often over here. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, with the tab complete, that started deleting star. So I didn't notice right away, but uh, you know, obviously my fault for using minus r when I wanted to delete one thing. But the command was taking longer than usual, and I was like, oh, that's a bad sign. Uh, I was getting worried, and then I saw. Start scrolling by can't delete slash sbin slash init because that's a, a system immutable file on FreeBSD and a bunch of other files like that. Oh no. I was like, uh oh, control C, control C, control C, ah! <laughs> And then it's like, the, the, I don't have LS. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's begun. And I was like, oh. So I stopped it before it deleted everything, but it's, it's clobbered, you know, bin, sbin, and a couple things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember if it got ETC yet or not. <laughs> Luckily, I had twice daily backups using Bacula. Nice. Another machine. Yeah. So log into the Bacula console, start the restore operation, files come back. Uh, oh, there's all my files, just how they were, you know, six hours ago. And because it's, you know, bin and sbin, those files haven't changed, so it's fine. 
Um, and so in the end, I got the machine all fine. Uh, the 100 plus customers that were using that machine didn't even notice. Although if somebody tried to log in and LS didn't work, they would have been very confused. <laughs> and then tried again a couple minutes later and it worked. And like, oh yeah, my gosh. Right? But I managed to keep the machine up and not even need a reboot. But, you know, I've actually <laughs> I've been where this guy is and it doesn't feel good. Uh, the difference is I had backups I could depend on and he didn't. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of other examples of this. Uh, I have uh, a postmortem on the Steam one. And then Brian Cantrell's story from uh, the episode of BSD Now. Uh, definitely watch the whole episode, but I have a YouTube link that jumps right to this particular story about RM minus RF. In particular, uh, the discussion after the story goes on to explain why RM minus RF slash doesn't work on Sun or FreeBSD. Uh, oh. You know, and, it, and we even go into the topic of, a, you know, well, as a standard person, I would say I... I I want to be able to do whatever, you know, the command should do what I tell it to do, not just magically stop me from doing things. Uh, but, you know, the POSIX rule is you can't delete the directory you're currently in. That's, you know, that's your current working directory. And rm minus rf slash would always delete your current working directory, no matter where it was. So the rules of POSIX say if there's an error, what ends up getting deleted and what not is undefined. And so it is actually POSIX compliant to stop the RM minus RF slash before it starts because it would eventually run into this error. Uh, and so then there's uh, the original story, I think, uh, is over at Server Fault where the guy posted the question. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking is, at that, Alan. <laughs> the sysadmin version of uh, Stack Overflow. Yeah. Yeah, here uh, he, he put, God, I feel for this guy because here's his question right here. Yeah. Uh, I run a small hosting provider with more or less uh, yeah, 1,500 customers. And it's like, hey, I know. And it's like, oh, boy, this is it. This is the actual guy. This is the guy right here. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, the question's been locked for being a duplicate of the previous question. And uh, also for too many off-topic, too much off-topic discussion. Um, in particular, one of the answers further down mentions, uh, you know, obviously what you need to do is DD that drive to a file or another drive so that mm. you uh, don't do any more writes to it. Yeah, so you don't touch the original drive, and you can run like test disk or something. Yes, the uh, the copy. Yep. that's uh, the forensic however, approach, really. Yes. However, the original poster then replies to that, saying that he accidentally swapped the input and output parameters of the DD command, and wonders what to do now. This is unbelievable. Now, um, <laughs> in general, if you DD from input file which is empty to the to the hard drive. Like the file doesn't exist, it would be zero bytes, and you wouldn't actually write anything to hard drive. In which case, you're okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, okay. <laughs> if you had, you know, first done truncate or something to make a big empty file, then you would have overwrote your entire hard drive with zeros. Just because of that, at the end there, it started to make me wonder if this was actually just a big troll. Yeah. Right. Because the other thing is, I thought on Linux, rm minus rs slash didn't work either. You had to actually do like no preserve root or whatever. Well, I know you'll definitely get a whole bunch of errors, but you can destroy a bunch of stuff. But like I thought Linux's rm specifically had protection against deleting slash unless you provided the no preserve root. God, I'd love to try it right now, but I need this machine to do the rest of the show. But I would love <laughs> so to try it. Funny thing, in the BSD Now episode, later Brian Control is telling the story to someone, and they're like well let's try it on your laptop and brian was like no just trust me it works and he's like no i want to see you do it on your laptop yeah so it's definitely worth watching that yeah uh, it does require dash dash no preserve root it didn't used to right. 
Right. So apparent and and you know the question says it was sent to OS seven, although maybe it wasn't. Um, so, so we could try this. We could spin up a droplet with CentOS seven and then see if we could delete the root. Right. And it would no harm, no foul. Yeah. Uh, well, because the nice thing with the digital ocean droplet is you snapshot it first, so you can always undo it. <laughs> True. <laughs> and we'll get to the chat room's question about that in ZFS in a minute. But um, so if that's the case, then that leads more credence to this idea that this is maybe just a joke troll because. Uh, you know, obviously you wouldn't put that no preserve root thing in your script when you're expecting it to actually delete a specific directory. Right. Uh, but maybe it was using an older version of Linux that didn't have the GNURM thing. I don't know how long that flag has been there. I know I've done it to myself you know, like, ages core, ago. Core utils in CentOS is quite old. Well, uh, like CentOS. If, if it's CentOS 6. If it's CentOS 6. 7, they messed up everything. It's terrible. I hate system D. It's sent to us too, which is if a mess. config by default is like what the hell, and then trying to configure a lag with some VLANs and network managers like changing stuff while yeah. you save the files before you ask it to restart. And my God, <laughs> what have you done? What have uh, you done? <laughs> so uh, that's an interesting little conspiracy. Is it maybe it's just to get some attention? Or well, something? I don't know what the advantage of it would be. Yeah, other than it seems make it funny online, use, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not going to say that I don't believe the guy because you know, as I've said, I've done the same thing to myself. Mm-hmm. I would just have better backups. <laughs> yes, if you had you know ZFS snapshots, then ZFS rollback your problem solved, right. and obviously that's kind of what you want on your backups at least. Uh, but really, your main problem is yeah, his backup shouldn't have been mounted as a directory like that. You mm-hmm. want to have your backups be you know over SSH or something. Uh, and the other big thing is. Just one copy with rsync or whatever is not a backup. Right. Because copy. especially if you have rsync set to delete files that no longer exist on the source, it means if your backup kicks off after somebody's gone and deleted, say, all your customer data but nothing else, mm-hmm. if you then do your backup script runs and it's set to delete files that have been removed from the source machine, it's going to delete your backup copy. <laughs> yeah. You're and right. that's, that's not what you want. <laughs> but you need a real backup. Right. You know, something like Bacula or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Woo. Woo. Shake that off. That feels bad. All right. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Uh, no. You know, funny. literally, one of my very, very, very first Linux experiences, I asked, literally almost the first time ever, I, I did not understand how the path system worked, and I deleted my root file system. It's actually one of the reasons, I've told this story before, it's actually one of the reasons I stuck with Linux afterwards is I was damn impressed that my GUI was still functioning after I deleted the whole root file system. <laughs> Look at this. Everything in memory is still working. This is great. It just thinks it's fine. And I was impressed by that. <laughs> and so that was how literally RM-RF is what one of my, my gateway drugs into start getting started with Linux. These days, maybe DigitalOcean might be yours. It's a great way to spin up a Linux rig on demand in less than 55 seconds. And if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, oh, you get a $10 credit. SNAPOcean, one word. Digital ocean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to making sure it's easy for you to get started to spin up your own free bsd rig a linux box they got it they got a bunch of different distributions including that CentOS, and they have data centers in new york san francisco singapore amsterdam london germany toronto they have a new one in india yep and india one's not online yet but no no uh, but soon uh, and i'm sure they'll have a banner up on their site when it is and really 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 well done interface that makes it very yes. simple to manage and start virtual machines but also to set some no- some actually nice powerful features like like backups 
private networking, SSH keys. It also makes it very easy if you want to deploy an entire application stack. And then you always have the ability to roll back to that raw application stack. So you can blow away the data and just go right back to the application stack, plug your stuff back in, and it's set up and good to go again. That makes rebuilding super fast over DigitalOcean. Of course, if you use their straightforward API, you could snap it into your existing management infrastructure. So instead of RMRFing your entire file system, you could actually deploy to DigitalOcean as you need to scale. They have hourly pricing available, and if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, that goes quite a ways. And if you try them out, you might find that once you get up and going, you want to use DigitalOcean for all kinds of things. And maybe you've gone outside what they have available for their one-click deployment. They have really good tutorials you can go from from there. Yes, lots of them. And they've just r- launched a new tool, and along with the new tool, they've launched uh, documentation for it, uh, yeah. DOCTL, which is the official DigitalOcean command line client to allow you to manage all of the stuff you can do from the web UI on the command line. Yep. Which I think is so, so brilliant, especially when mm-hmm. I have, like, a, I already often have a drop-down terminal with one of my or two of my DigitalOcean droplets, like, logged in at the, at the shell. And this is even better because now when I go to do something crazy, I can use this to issue a backup first, <laughs> which yeah. has really well, saved my bacon. It's yeah. really nice. Uh, being able to snapshot the machines uh, and then spin up another version based on that snapshot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and transfer Obviously, uh, something like CryptoLocker isn't going to happen to a DigitalOcean droplet. But you can picture, you have your machine here, and you're taking snapshots on a regular basis. Machine gets crypto-lockered. You clone it from the last snapshot that was good, and you get all your files back and get up in production. But on the frozen machine that got crypto-lockered, you can go through and find the files that hadn't been encrypted yet but are newer. Smart. And then manually bring them over so mm-hmm. that you, know, you didn't lose the last hour of work mm-hmm. on top of everything. Uh, so it lets you get back online right away but still be able to recover. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the big thing I would say. I was in, uh, I was using it when I was intentionally breaking the latest own cloud nine for a deployment test, intentionally yep. in breaking it, and but needing to go back to a known good config. So I built it up, got it configed, uh, got SSL set up, called it good, snapshot, and then kept breaking it after that. And I could always go back. And I think now with something like this command line utility to be able to do it from the command line, I'm going to be able to do it even faster, which yep. is pretty cool. So they have a bunch of great open source code written around that API, and this is one of them. Check yeah. them out at DigitalOcean. The other thing is the the source for the Command line client is up on their GitHub. That's cool. I didn't know that. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, they use it. They do write, they, you know, like their, a lot of their tools to deploy applications to the droplets and stuff, they've also released as open source. Uh, so you check them out, use the promo code SNAPOcean and support the show and give yourself a $10 credit. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So we've been mentioning that new FreeNAS Mini XL, and I'm super, super jelly because episode 137 just hit the web a little bit ago, and I. I know that Chris has got an unboxing video. in there. Yeah. He's got the unboxing. That That's pretty nice. You haven't gotten to play with it, though. No. So you and I are still... Oh, I, I have bigger storage servers. It wouldn't be... Yeah, that. that's true. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Well, it's really cool. So, yep, uh, Chris, uh, not this Chris, but Chris with a K uh, from BSD Now got his hands on the uh, Mini XL and uh, showed it off, as, long, as well as news and others in an abbreviated edition of the BSD Now program. Slightly more manageable size than usual. <laughs> JupiterBroadcasting.com. Go get 137. If you, go, if you go grab that guy right now, you'll have more Jude for your face after we wrap up the TechSnap program. But we're not done here, because next is the TechSnap Feedback. Feedback. 
Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or perhaps you created a, a thread on our subreddit. Probably not, though, at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email today comes in from Luke, and he's got a question, Naz or San? And this is probably one that is in the mind of a lot of our viewers. Love the show. He says, just wondering if either of you guys have any fancy, any fancy speaking about storage for a bit. <laughs> what? He wants to know if we fancy speaking about it. Well, we do. That's what he said. Yeah. I, I really, yeah, I know. First of all, what are the fundamental differences between SANS and NASs? And what are the right occasions to choose either one? Second, what are the resources that are most important when achieving higher data rates? I'm looking at a QNAP or a QSAN as well as their other products. And they all seem to be i3 or i5 CPUs. Surely something like a Xeon would be better for this job. Or is it maybe RAM that is more important? Look forward to the upcoming show. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, so there's a couple of different things. So starting with the first question about SAN or NAS, in general, the definition is a SAN is basically when your storage is on a separate network with nothing but other storage versus a NAS, which is when you put your storage server on your regular network. So in general, it's because you know this way there's no other traffic making your, your file access slower. In slightly more historical context, it usually meant a non-Ethernet type of network, like fiber channel or mm, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now with Ethernet being so fast you, and low latency. And iSCSI so uh, prominent. Yeah. Um, you know, it's normal to see that just be regular as well. Mm-hmm. Although maybe uh, sometimes a separate switch or a yeah, separate or just subnet. Like, like or... Even, you know, if, if it's just, if you have your machines that are running virtualization and it has a direct cable that goes directly to the storage server, that's a SAN. Whereas if, it, if both go into the switch and it's with all your other traffic, then it's a NAS. But yeah, it's basically, I would say a little more than maybe a VLAN. It's like physically separated network, but that's really the only difference. In general, a SAN is, you're doing it because you need higher performance and they, you know, in, in marketing terms, it's more money, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah. But and you can have multiple terms, front ends to that storage more often on a SAN. Yes, uh, but in, and also SANs often produce LUNs that you then consume with iSCSI or something, whereas right. a NAS is like file sharing. Yeah. But in the end, the same machine can do either. It's really the the definite the difference in definition is mostly about how it's connected and how you expose but the disk. The, yeah, and the the products are mostly using the differentiation to mean more than the name of the. Uh, I've always hated it for some reason, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, really, a SAN is just a more expensive NAS. Yes. <laughs> and you have to have another computer to connect to it to, to make the storage available. Well, and you know, the thing you buy at Best Buy that says NAS on the side, like a QNAP or whatever, probably doesn't support doing iSCSI. But if you're using free NAS, it does. And So then so, is it a NAS or a SAN? Well, that's why we've replaced all of it with the new term software-defined storage. There you go. I like that a lot more. Uh, Gordon's going to be software defining these SSDs. Well, making me, oh. Second question. Though. Oh, did he have more? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So his question was, uh, he was looking at how to, what's required to get the highest data Oh, the data CPUs rates. or RAM, uh, right. Because he, he was looking at a QNAP or a QSAN versus buying something from IX or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he says, noticed that i3 and i5 processors seem to be prominent. Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, in general, uh, especially with ZFS, you know, you don't really need much more than an i3 or an i5. Um, because what, or, you know, if you're not running a Plex server or something or some plugins and stuff on top of it, all ZFS is doing is the checksumming and the compression. And, you know, those are plenty fast and an i3 or an i5 is enough. Um, and, you know, oftentimes with, especially with a smaller NAS, kind of like the free NAS mini or the QNAPs or whatever, where it's just going to 
be a box by itself, power consumption is the big worry. So something like a Xeon doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, and that's why the Freenas yeah. Mini and Mini XL use the um, Atom processor. Yeah. Um, for, and just for, even just not just energy, too, but as you know, in my circumstance, noise is a big factor, yes. too. Uh, you know, uh, a Xeon is going to produce more heat, which requires more fans, which makes more noise. Um, in general, the main reason to go up from something like an i5 or even like an E3 to a Xeon is if you need more memory or more PCI Express lanes. What about encryption? Um, you have AES and I on either, although, okay. yes, if you're, if you're doing a high data rate and encryption, a beefier CPU is probably better, but then you're, you know, you're just looking at I5 or I7 versus an I3. Yeah. You don't necessarily need a Xeon. Um, but pre-Skylake, uh, your I5, I7s, or E3s and so on are maxed out at 32 gigs of RAM. If you wanted slightly more, you needed to go to a Xeon. With Skylake, your i7s and E3s can go up to 64 gigs now. Uh, then you have in the middle, uh, Intel has the Xeon Ds, which can go up to 128 gigs. Uh, but then if you go to a Xeon, a proper one, like an e, uh, E5 or whatever, then you're looking at 768 gigs of RAM per processor, Ooh. and you can put two or four in a box. So that gives you up to your three terabytes of RAM. Some serious power usage at that point, though. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, but the big the other thing is PCI lanes. So if, you know, it, to achieve higher data rates, firstly, you need NICs that can do it, right? Yeah. So if you have one, <laughs> one gigabit network card, you're not going to get more than the gigabit. Effect. You, can look at, you know, 100-ish megabytes a second if you're lucky. Good point. Uh, you know, also your data rate is mostly limited by your hard drives. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You got to yeah. look at IOPS more than just, you know, Yes, a spinning hard drive can do, you know, 150 megabytes a second. But if you ask it for five files at once, you get, you know, 150 megabytes divided by two to the power of five or something, right? It goes down. Every time you add an extra files, it gets twice as slow um, because you're seeking. So uh, obviously, you can help that with ZFS with an uh, L2 arc for caching. But, you know, that only caches certain files. depends on how big your data set is. So... Uh, more disks will give you uh, more IOPS, but depends how you lay them out, right? If you do RAID Z, uh, then everything in one group is only uh, giving you the IOPS of one drive. Whereas if you do the RAID 10s type, then you're going to get the number of IOPS out of every drive. So it really uh, comes down to each workload. So let me ask you a question. Um, so, really, Well, I guess the biggest thing to ask is not how can I get the highest data rate. It's What's the lowest data rate that's acceptable to me? And then build a machine to make sure that under okay. worst case scenario, it okay. will always be able to do at least this much. What's a good way to – so here's what I'm thinking, Alan, is we're going to rebuild some of the broadcast mm-hmm. machines in here. And I have, I have two options. I want to build two identical rigs to have a failover. And I'm gonna, I was thinking about putting three – because I got them for cheap – three one terabyte uh, drives in each. But now I'm thinking maybe I should put all six drives in one machine. But is that necessary because – well, I really gain much if I'm only reading or writing to one or two files at a time. If, if you're just laying out what big contiguous video files. video files. Yeah, maybe like two at a time. Uh, it really depends on your network. If you only have a gigabit of network, then you yes, two drives is enough to max that out. No, I, was, no, I mean to writing locally. Ah. Just determining like well, uh, would it be better to – How many hundreds of megabytes a second do you want to do? <laughs> hmm. A couple, at least 300 megabytes a second, probably. Yeah. Well, then you probably want more than just the two drives mirrored. So I want probably two sets of three, don't I? 
Um, two sets of one and and write one you mean to one three set? sets of two, right? Or that, right? Because if you if you do three mirrors of two drives each, yeah. Then when the file comes in, you'll break it into three chunks and write it to each chunk to two disks in case one fails. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Well, we should chat about this in the production yes. check. We, we, uh, yeah. We'll sort out what you want to do. Because, yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. Because then thinking about, okay, so that really is what is the lowest performance I'm willing to accept. Yeah. So you have to look at IOPS and throughput and define the lowest you're willing to accept and build I like that. that. Because you can't depend on the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure, this machine can, can max out two gigabits. It's like, yeah, sure. But under our production load, it's going to do a, right. a quarter of that. And that's not good enough. Yeah. Um, the other point was expansion cards. If you're going to put you know, if, if it's a bigger machine where you're going to have more than just the number of SATA ports that are on the motherboard mm. or whatever, and you're going to put expansion cards in to control the disks, you only have so many PCI lanes on, like, an E3, right? Because an E3 is basically the server version of an i7. Um, and so, you know, you get, like, one or two 16x slots, and that's it. Uh, whereas with a Xeon, you get that much, or more than that, but you get, I think, 40 lanes per processor and then if you put two processors in hmm. now you have all these lanes uh and then if you're looking at you know 10 gigabit network cards like dual port 10 gigabit network cards and your uh sas controllers and you know maybe a video card for video processing whatever you're doing then that can be a reason to push you up to a xeon uh like an e4 or sorry an e5 instead of an e3 uh because you needed to be able to install 128 gigs of RAM or needed to have enough PCI Express slots that are fast enough to do all the things you're trying to connect to it. Hmm. That's a lot to but think in about. in general, uh, CPU is not going to be the limit on accessing files unless you're doing encryption. But even then, an i7 is probably more than enough for uh, yeah. two gigabits a second. Yeah. Good answer. All right. So, kind of, kind of along like performance lines, and, and that definitely stayed yeah. on the ZFS train, Gordon writes in. Uh, he says, hi, Chris and Alan. In case you're just missing something from the obligatory ZFS question, I got one for you, which, no, but we love them. Uh, I've successfully built uh, several free NAS boxes and hooked them up via iSCSI to both VMware and Proxmox hosts. They are typically between 12 disk uh, arrays, uh, 7.2 spinnings uh, with, some SSD, for, with an SSD in there for the ZIL. I've just purchased tw- a 26... Bay two and a half inch uh, drive sled size storage chassis, uh, and I'm thinking of building it all SSDs with relatively inexpensive SSDs such as the Samsung 850 Pro one terabyte models, a 10 gigabit NIC for iSCSI connectivity, and 64 gigabytes of RAM. The plan would need to start off with four or six SSDs in mirrored pairs in one ZVOL, and then grow the array as needed. The array would primarily be used for virtual disk images from two hosts running Exchange, SQL, and remote desktop server for around 20 users, as well as a handful of LXC containers. Uh, So my question is, SSDs in ZFS, is it a good idea? I've read numerous posts on the subject with no definitive answers as to whether there is a performance benefit, or does the life expectancies of SSDs make it not economical. The SSD write cache was crucial on my other spinning disk arrays, but I guess there wouldn't be much benefit on an all SSD array? That's a great question, too. Thanks again for any comments or suggestions. So, yes. Um, nice thing about ZFS is, yeah, uh, you know, if you're doing mirrored pairs, you can just add SSDs over time. Um, as far as SSDs and ZFS is a good idea, yes. Uh, in particular, SSDs are kind of, especially cheaper ones, are famous for having problems like uh, returning the wrong data sometimes. Uh, well, ZFS and its checksums are the only way to defend yourself against that. Hmm. Uh, you know, I know 
a certain very large company that does online coupons uh, where they were seeing sometimes up to 20% uh, of their data being scrambled uh, by their SSDs and only recovering from it because ZFS and their mirroring uh, of the SSDs. So yes, uh, while SSDs are expensive, um, comparatively, you know, if you need the speed, they're a great way to do it. Um, so yes, that's, you know, uh, cheap SSDs with ZFS as are long great. as you have enough yeah. depth. Uh, if you're really, if, if you, I wouldn't expect a very high failure rate, but if you were getting a really high failure rate, you might decide to do your mirrors three deep uh, just in case. But I doubt that's necessary. The Samsung uh, SSDs are not known to be terrible. That so uh, he seems to have questions around using SSDs as part of an overall storage array. And I think he also right. you know, has questions the about life expectancy about make, and economical. Yeah, so the, life, the life expectancy of the SSDs, none of my SSDs have given out yet. Um, the good th- depending on the drive, usually with the smart data, you can actually get the wear level information where it'll say, you know, this drive is used 10% of its effective life. Uh, or at least see, you know, it's written X many terabytes. And then the warranty will say it's good for, you know, this many terabytes total. And you can decide based on your policy at what point you decide to replace an SSD because it's been used too much. Hmm, okay. Um, I've uh, wondered too about, hmm? well, this for this new rig we were building, I thought about also going with one terabyte SSDs. But I just didn't really... It's so much more, like, uh, for your use case with the videos... You would for the same price as the one terabyte SSD, you get such bigger hard drives. Yeah, better. that's what I figured. More of the hard drives so that you could mirror them more better, so right. that you get the more flexibility. That's what I figured, and then I got, I yeah, and so, but you I know, it, it crossed my mind. S- yeah, but if you went with all SSDs for your work case and your budget, uh, you'd end up having to do like RAID Z one or two and only be able to handle one or two losses, mm-hmm. uh, and it would mean that you, if you wanted to expand, you had to buy that many drives in a group again. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. if you went with Spinning hard drives, you could buy, you know, a couple of sets and mirror them. So that's lower, you know, for the same money, you would get the same or more space mm-hmm. uh, as compared to the SSDs, but much less than if you did, you know, the try to get the most space you could out of the drives. But because of that flexibility, being able to just add two drives at a time to your yes. array, yes. it would be a better deal for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. uh, especially because looking forward with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his question about uh, using a, an S-log for, or, you know, the right cache for mm-hmm. SSD. Uh, doing an SSD in an all SSD array probably isn't worth it, <laughs> but there are things faster than SSDs now. We have NVMe, which are these uh, basically PCI cards with flash on them. The big difference is they have their own protocols called NVMe uh, instead of pretending to be a hard drive like an SSD does. And so the 800 gig one I got to play with can read at 3800 megabytes a second okay or 3.8 gigabytes a second, all right and write at like 1700 about half that okay um so now you know compared to your ssd that's doing 500 megabytes a second that's a lot faster you know mm-hmm. um super micro makes a couple chassis where you just stick like four of those in the machine Ooh. and use that for the storage all right <laughs> um but you have to have you know that only really makes sense for databases and stuff. Mm-hmm. But if if you felt that you needed to accelerate your all SSD array, there are options like NV. Uh, you can uh, NV make it ME. faster. And in the future, we will have NV DIMMs. Hmm. hmm. What about using a RAM disk? All a RAM. What about a RAM disk? There just are things like Zeus RAM, but I don't know that they're that popular anymore. SSDs got close enough to being fast enough and are much yeah. easier. You know, you don't and need you know, a battery persistent. that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very um, good. Very good. 
but <clears throat> with an all SSD array, I doubt you're going to need it. So Okay. All right. Well, if you'd like to send your question in, just go to Jupiter Broadcasting. Click on the contact link at the top of the page and choose TechSnap from the drop-down or email us directly TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Send your questions in. We'd love to answer them. Storage, networking, security, basically the whole range. It doesn't have to be just CFS, although those are some fun ones this week and make you think a little bit maybe about your future build. All right, Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup for stories that we just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. Some of these links, like a smattering, came from our subreddit, and most of them came from, well, Alan and myself, mostly Alan, and including our first link, which I am super excited about, Alan. There is an update for the ZFS book. Yes, so this is the second book. Oh, man. Yes, the second whole book is now available, uh, FreeBC Mastery Advanced ZFS, which covers uh, more complicated things like doing replication, uh, delegating uh, privileges to users, uh, delegating to a jail, um, what other stuff is there, uh, splitting the layout of your mirrors, uh, different strategies for backups. Hmm. Oh, what link didn't work? Uh, I wanted to get a bigger picture. I clicked the picture oh, okay. and just did that, yeah. But that is great, yep. Alan. Uh, optimizing ZFS block storage based on your block size and so on. Uh, how to get best performance out of your BitTorrents on, mm. uh, you know, to avoid the fragmentation normally caused by BitTorrent because you get the file all out of order. Yeah. It's like, well, you want a separate data set for your downloading directory and then have your torrent client, almost all of them support it, move the finished file to this other data set. And then you'll only ever have the one area that's getting all fragmented and your files will basically be defragmented when they're done downloading i'm loving the uh, uh the artwork alan yes uh so this is a uh as is all the art in the series it's a classic painting then reimagined to be about bsd <laughs> uh and so you know the identity of the person on the back has been hidden on purpose ah uh, okay to find out so that but, hand is intentionally placed well, like yes. that yeah. <laughs> okay i thought yes, that was just... uh it's the ebook version is on, available now. You can get it from Amazon in every country, uh, iTunes, Gumroad if you're in Europe, uh, I don't know, everywhere, or what's directly the best, from the site. What's the best URL for folks listening to go to? ZFSbook.com. There you go. Uh, and you can buy it directly from the author with no DRM or through Amazon, Gumroad, iTunes, Kobo, wherever you get your books from. Is there a set <clears throat> amount of books planned? Uh, that's the end of the ZFS series for now, anyway. Mm. Um the next book is about PAM, the authentication system. Oh, cool. Well, I'm, I'm not writing that one. Yeah. That's all my <laughs> Good. Well, you can take a break. I, and, I'm taking a sabbatical yeah. from writing for a little bit. I bet. Yeah, That's so really the cool. The book's up there for $9.99. Uh, if you pre-ordered, you already had access to it for less money. Uh, and the print version is hopefully only a week or two away and then will also be available on Amazon. That's super cool. Congratulations. And uh, – It'll be a couple of months before it'll be in actual bookstores, but it's on its way there as well. All right. This first story in the roundup pretty much went there just because it wins headline of the week. How to not get pwned on Windows. Don't run any virtual machines. Open any web pages, office docs, hyperlinks, dot, 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 oh, and keep an eye on your wireless mouse, too. This is just a good summary of some of the – you mentioned yeah. some important recent updates. Well, here's some important recent updates from Microsoft. Yeah, this is basically this month's Patch Tuesday, uh, <laughs> and it's basically everything. Yeah, There's including a nasty one for Hyper-V. So yeah. 
That's for uh, the uh, virtual machines. Yeah. Uh, Hyper-V flaws, cumulative update for Internet Explorer, cumulative update for the Edge browser, cumulative update for Skype for Business and Microsoft Link, which mm. is Microsoft's phone system. Mm-hmm. Uh, flaw in the XML core services thing, which could be uh, web browser exploited. Four memory corruption vulnerabilities in Office. Vulnerabilities in the OLE allow an attacker to remotely execute code by convincing the target to open any Office file or web page or email. Oh. Um, flaw in the Windows secondary logon that allows an attacker to elevate their user privileges to become administrator. <laughs> uh, the man oh. attack that was bad lock. Mm-hmm. Uh, a vulnerability in the Windows CR. Uh, CSRSS, the a potential allows an attacker to bypass security credentials and gain administrative access by exploiting a flaw in the way it handles memory tokens, <laughs> service against the HTTP server, <laughs> and uh, a cumulative update for the Flash Player bundled into uh, Internet Explorer. And right, Edge and Edge, yeah. Yes, and oh. separately there's another one about the, uh, there's an optional update that won't be auto-installed, but it's optional that uh, implements some workarounds for the uh, mouse jacking one, which is if you have a Microsoft wireless mouse or keyboard, uh, the signal can be overridden from up to 100 meters away and cause your computer to click things and type things that you're not doing. 100 meters is decent. Yeah, that's, that's a good range. Yeah. I'm, I kind of makes me want to get a Microsoft mouse or keyboard if they have that kind of range. <laughs> well, the mouse, does, the, the mouse and keyboard don't have the range, but the receiver. Yeah, the receiver. That's yeah, that's what matters. Yeah. Uh, so you know what, Alan? Somehow you managed to find the one post that doesn't make my eyes glaze over when I see the words WhatsApp. I've been seeing a lot of headlines about WhatsApp and encryption, but you have one here from the open – I'm sorry, from the whispersystems.org website yes. about the uh, new protocol integration with WhatsApp. So in particular, WhatsApp got encryption. You're, everybody's like, ho-hum. But they didn't just do their own encryption or something. They went with Open Whisper Systems Open Source Signal Protocol, which oh, okay. is well-designed, well-developed, publicly audited, trusted Respected. system. Right. And basically, it's a full public key encryption system done properly. It basically uh, PGP, but done in a way that people can actually use. So like, hmm. if you show that screenshot again... Mm-hmm. Uh, Instead of the old-fashioned key signing parties, if you actually meet someone in person and want to make sure that you know when you're talking to them later, you're actually talking to the real them, there's a QR code you can take with their app or just a series of numbers that they can read I you. I like that. So if you get a phone call from them, they can read you the numbers and you can tell that it's really their voice at least. Mm-hmm. All right? So mm-hmm. it basically, not only are you getting the encryption, but you can be sure you're talking to the person you actually think you're talking to. I do like this a lot. Which is better than just end-to-end encryption. I don't, also, I don't ever use WhatsApp, but that seems yeah. like a great feature. Uh, yeah, and also they implement it for everything. So it's not just for text messages. It includes their phone call system, uh, pictures you send are encrypted, everything is. Now, they are keeping, I believe, like, like essentially the metadata of like w- 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 like timestamps and stuff like that, server-side, so that way when you log into different WhatsApp clients, that information syncs between your WhatsApp clients or something i don't use whatsapp so i sound like an idiot but either but i know there's still some server-side data saved but no message content message content is now signal protected which is freaking awesome yeah uh makes me kind of think maybe consider whatsapp's worth getting a look because just being able uh, to at conferences you know do that uh that that key exchange like that would be mm kind of handy well I, i know some really high security type people i know were definitely pro signal and like that right so having it in uh, the big thing with WhatsApp is uh, while it isn't as big as like Telegram in the U.S., everywhere else in the world it's huge. Oh, I think WhatsApp's pretty big in the U.S. now. 
Well, yes. WhatsApp has over a billion users yeah. to Telegram's yeah. one-tenth of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah, the fact that they went with something like Signal instead of implementing their own yeah. like Telegram uh, does, has done is a The interesting thing is, you know, uh, if you actually read uh, – we covered the story on BSD Now. If you read the actual story from – I think it was Wired, uh, it tells the story of how this all happened. And it was because uh, Moxie Merlinspike, who runs Open Whisper Systems and has the coolest hacker name ever um, – was at his uh, family reunion for his girlfriend, and his girlfriend's like cousin's boyfriend worked at WhatsApp, and they got talking over dinner, and hmm. all this eventually led to WhatsApp getting Signal. Well, they did it the right way. I'll give him credit. Yeah, uh, but the, uh, the story also covers interviews with the two founders of WhatsApp, and uh, mostly that this was decided before they were taken over by Facebook, and. Uh, you know that they're still pretty autonomous from Facebook. Hmm. Yes. Oh, I I thought I thought <coughs> they rejected the, the Facebook why, buy. I thought Snap. Oh no, that oh that's no, no, Snapchat they sold it for eighteen billion. Right. Was, I'm thinking of Snapchat. Right. I'm thinking of Snapchat. Uh, because the one of the founders of uh, WhatsApp was a FreeBSD developer. Yeah. Uh, and donated to the FreeBSD Foundation when he sold yeah. WhatsApp for a lot of money. I can't keep track <laughs> of it all anymore, Alan. I can't keep track of it. Yep. So well, this is in, interesting. Follow up to that whole FBI trying to get access to the iPhone, uh, and then later on it came out that uh, they perhaps a company named Celebrite was helping them. But now, That's now no. this week, it's looking like perhaps it was a one-time exploit that they bought from a hacking group. Yeah, potentially. so they so they bought a zero-day exploit that works against the five C in order to get in. So this uh, suggests something like um, what was that French company called with a V? Oh. Vupen? Yeah, it's yeah, yes, like yes, Vupen. Yep, yep. No, Vupen. Yeah, Vupen. It was Vupen or Zerodium or something like that, where one of these companies had a bunch of these zero days yes. that they keep secret and yeah. sell them to the government and for half a million dollars which, a pop. And we've talked about this a long time ago. We pointed out is continuing to raise the cost of these zero days and make, make them more valuable because they continue to buy them. And this is a perfect example. They've sold that for a pretty penny. And, and you've got to figure – you got to figure that it's no no. Well, I'll actually, I'll save the second part. I have a conspiracy, just a little bit about this that I will mention after we read another story in the roundup. So I'll save my thoughts. I will move on. But that is an interesting point that they uh, might have just bought something off the gray market. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> what they did. And uh, it seems that it only works for the iPhone five C. Doesn't work mm. for the new five S mm. or six. Um, and so after some amount of time, maybe the it'll get disclosed. Because yeah. it's only useful against so many phones. But I'm sure lots of people still have five Cs. I don't know. Sure. I sell, I sell millions of things. Well, maybe the FBI should have just tried setting the clock back to 1970. Uh, I guess the bug well, is back. Well, bricked it. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I'm just if the even... FBI wants your phone, you should... Yeah, right. Set it to 1970. <laughs> exactly. So after the, uh, Apple claimed to have fixed this in February, researchers have posted a new video demoing how to do a remote version of this. Basically, they set up a rogue... Uh, hmm. They set up AP. a rogue access point. Uh, you connect to it. The DHCP server says, hey, use this time server. The iPhone does. It Hi, sets the clock back this? to uh, December 31st, uh, like 235901. <laughs> uh, within 20 minutes, your, wife, your uh, iPhone bricks itself. Right. If your iPhone battery doesn't catch on fire first. Apparently doing this can cause a battery to catch on fire. So you, the trick here is you're not setting it to 1970. You're setting, to, you're setting it to December 31st, 1969 at 11.30. A couple minutes so that it'll yeah. hit 1970. Clever. And the phone just starts freaking the crap out in the meantime. 
I, what could you, what, I mean, the only way I could figure that is you would have to be superheating the CPU, right? Well, yeah, basically I think it just makes the CPU just spin or something. Huh. And, uh, yeah. Well, there you the go. battery shouldn't be able to catch on. Like the, it seems like the battery should be tested against the maximum draw of the hardware. Yeah. yeah. And not get hot enough to burn you, let alone catch on fire. Right. I wonder. Hmm. So uh, I guess I don't even need to step down off that soapbox. Uh, here's another report. This is zero-day exploits more than double as attackers prevail in the security arms rest race. Uh, so you can see the numbers shooting up in 2015. So this and is just showing known zero-days. Yes. This isn't showing the ones that places like Vupen find. No, but the hunt is on. That's what this. I think that's what this reflects is this zero-days are such a coveted item now. The hunt is on. Yeah, uh, I wish they had a graph of how many of those zero-days came out because a researcher found it first versus how many of those came out because they were being exploited and we had to reverse engineer the exploit and make a fix. Yeah. Total uh, time of exposure, average days to patch, not always that great. Yeah. So uh, definitely things you see in 2015, things got a lot better after Heartbleed. We can see that in most cases, people are patching a zero day within a reasonable amount of time instead of like four months like it used to be. Hmm. Oh, and oh, this is a shocker, Alan. New website lets anyone spy on Tinder users. Yeah, so uh, in further proving that apps don't take data security seriously, <laughs> uh, Tinder has an official API now so that people could build companion apps and so on. Oh, good. And it turns out somebody built one of these websites and you can access way more data than you should be able to through the API. And so, yeah, you can figure You can out- find out who's using Tinder for only four ninety nine with Swipe Buster. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in particular, I think it tells you who you can look at your friends and see who like didn't who 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 gave you a negative vote or oh whatever. no oh that's not good yeah, yeah that's not good yeah because it must pull all that from your Facebook so or your whatever social medias right your Instagrams yeah. and your what's nots so uh, hey good news for you uh, for you uh, those of you that actually managed to get your Nexus uh, updates at least. Nobody else, really. But there is a, a patch coming out. Their April update uh, fixes a Linux kernel flaw that was found in 2014, but has since uh, been found to apply to uh, Android, Android as well. Mm-hmm. The uh, Z- Zimperium researchers reported it to Google privately mm. on March 15th, mm. and it's included oh. in the April security. Wow, a very That's quick turnaround. Turn. So how'd that install go on your phone there, Alan? Uh, I haven't got April pop-up hmm. yet. Hmm. I'm well, sure I'm, sure, like, I'm sure by the time July rolls around, you'll get it. Well, uh Usually it's been pretty good the first couple of days in the month. That's so good. It's a little slow. I'm really glad. Uh, Dial it back a couple of days to get this extra fix in there. Maybe they're dealing with the PR fallout from this uh, hub shutdown. So Google owns Nest. And Nest so, made this product. So, yeah. So Nest bought a company called Resolve that made a product. And then Google bought Nest. Right. And That's- now... Google or Nest or somebody is killing off the old Resolve product, which now, is an acquisition of Nest, which was then acquired by the Google. The thing that's a real kind of a uh, uh, sort of a salt in the wound is this particular device was sold with a lifetime of service. Yeah. Uh, there's actually some people looking into the wording to see if it's actually deceptive advertising and if the Federal Trade Commission should be involved in this. Yeah. Uh, Not a good start for the Internet of Things when you say you're going to have lifetime yeah. service and then... And then after a year or two... They kill off the device. And, yeah. you know, how many times we've seen this Noah's fridge? How many smart TVs? I think there's an LG smart TV where it's just going to get remotely bricked. Yeah. My, uh, my Vizio smart TV last night when I turned it on, uh, a big screen came up and I turned around and looked at it and it was tiny text, but it said something about 
Uh, if you would like to disable the the monitoring of what you watch and what you click on on your TV, click here or something like that. Like it was going to be sending my usage patterns back to Vizio by default. And I went to go get the remote to, to click to say don't do it, and it went off the screen. It timed out. And I can't find it anywhere in the settings now. Yeah, that's the sneaky way. Uh, it was, and I, I was shocked when I saw it, Alan. When I saw it, I was like – because it's like everything you do, including like they may access the microphone. Yeah. Shocking. Disgusting. So, yeah, let's put more computers in these things and then not update them. So then not only are you spying on me, but you're giving me vulnerabilities on my network. Thanks for that. This is a bit of a cluster. I heard about this story. Uh, The entire Turkish citizen database has been illegally or allegedly, I guess I should say, leaked online. Yep. So that's 50 million people with their national identity number, which I'm guessing is something like a social insurance number. Uh, First name, last name, mother's first name, father's first name, gender, city of birth, date of birth, Mm. uh, the registration city and district where they uh, registered and their address. That is uh, apparently it might have been related to a voter database or something. That sounds like it, huh? So it might not be quite everybody in Turkey, but everybody who voted anyway. Well, PHP haters are gonna are gonna love this one. Beware of unverified TLS certs in PHP and Python. And Go. So Google's not uh, blameless oh. in this one. So it turns out uh, when you make connections from Python or Go or PHP via the APIs to stuff. Um, they don't always check everything. In particular, first thing you got to check is, is the certificate trusted? You can mm-hmm. see the self-signed, uh, you know, if you use curl with PHP, it was fine. But if you use PHP itself back in 5.5, it had a problem, although it was fixed in 5.6. And you see Python 2.7, bad. And even 3.0 was Yeah, bad. really? <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, so, that's, so that's just bothering to check if the certificate is trusted or not. That's, you know, depending on what you're connected to, whatever. Um, then the next one was if the certificate's expired. So just looking at the date on the certificate and making sure it's valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see that uh, you know, PHP, PHP 5.5 totally fails. Yeah, and so did uh, Python. Yeah, Python does. Uh, 2.7.6 does too. Yep, 2.7.1 does finally. But then they drop into in 3.3, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, so, so 2.7.10 is newer than 3.3. And 3.4.3 doesn't as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, Huh. And then the big one, though, you see where everybody failed before and still is checking for revoked certificates. Oh. So you have to actually look at the certificate, and the certificate will have a URL to the certificate revocation list. And you have to download that and check, is the certificate I'm being presented on this list of certificates that have since been revoked? It doesn't happen very often, but if your server gets compromised and somebody steals your private key, you revoke your old certificate and get a new one. Uh, or, you know, we've also seen... Uh, when fake certificates for Google were accidentally issued, um, then it would go on the revocation list. But you know that's why we've had these blacklists where, like the fake Google certificates, get programmed into browsers directly, because revocation isn't done very well by a lot of things. And it turns out that none of these scripting languages do that properly. Mm-hmm. Part of the uh, thing is because, like for example, PHP doesn't have a running state; it wouldn't cache that, right? And you don't want to have to download the whole revocation list, which mm. can be multiple megabytes, and check it every time you make a connection to a website. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know that can be a pretty big deal. Uh, it goes on to also talk about uh, how did it has examples in PHP how to do certificate pinning. So uh, if you don't have the whole cert or whatever, you can be like, oh, this is the right certificate for Amazon or whatever. Uh, but then they talk about how that's a problem with Twitter because Twitter uses three different certificates depending on what servers you hit. Mm. That's uh, complicated. Um, well, I think they do that so that if any one CA gets compromised, they still have two good certificates. Huh. Okay. Uh, but it means that pinning doesn't work uh, for their API. 
But anyway, uh, cool. interesting read there. Yeah. And, uh, it has a bunch of good advice on how to uh, enhance your scripts to deal with it. Yep, link in the roundup for that. So how about this? Remember I told you I had a conspiracy theory I was going to share with you in a moment? Uh, well, here it comes. Uh, there is a new technology being marketed heavily to law enforcement and the FBI. First came the breathalyzer. Now it's the textalizer. It yes, looks this is from that company Celebrite that bingo might have been related to. And the now FBI. we all know their name, and we all think they're super savvy technically. And then they come out with a product that analyzes your iPhone location records and your text messages and pairs them up. Pretty yeah. big coincidence. So basically. This is after a traffic accident. Mm-hmm. Each person's phone would be hooked up to the textalizer and would determine if either of the part drivers were texting or talking on their phone when the crash happened. Right. And, and if you happen to be texting when you're driving and that's illegal, then the crash is your fault. Celebrite uh, pitches it as a roadside technology that should be easy for law enforcement to use. Uh, yeah. So this would be some little thing that they would you know, hook up to their in-car computer and – Check your phone right there at the scene of the accident. Here's the thing. I uh, think – here's why I think – here's why I think – I think Celebrite trendjacked. I think they trendjacked awesome. the iPhone story and they got their name out there because around the same time the iPhone story was brewing, there is legislation now brewing also in New York that would actually make it where they would determine if you were texting at the time of driving, you could be at fault for the accident. They're, they're capitalizing on two major events happening at once. Now we all know who the company is and we know they specialize in iPhone technology. It's brilliant. And helping the police crack iPhones, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah in, that, in that particular sector of work. Like it is, yeah. it is full market spectrum. Otherwise, nobody has heard of this Israeli company before. Right. It, I, I think they trend jacked and I think because of the FBI's case, impending case, they couldn't make a lot of public comment saying otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, the FBI wasn't going to come out and say, no, we're not using them. Right. Uh, because they would, like, cover about what they were actually doing. Right. Um, although I'm, I'm, it's just be, because they already built technology the police already have before, it wasn't unreasonable to assume it was them. So I don't know if this was their idea or not. But I wouldn't uh, be surprised because, you know, it came out. Here's the, 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 the way Celebrite, the way Celebrite came out. I was stalking them a couple weeks ago. Right. Yeah, Celebrite, uh, the, the, the leak by Celebrite came out through an Israeli trade newspaper uh, from Israel. So it's very likely someone at Celebrite leaked it to that newspaper and it got published from there and taken off. Yep. Uh, so that's fascinating. Anyway, it's very fascinating. So the uh, textilizer a, is coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know there's a semi-related case in Canada recently after uh, um, a lady got charged 14 different times with texting while driving and uh, since been suspended and isn't allowed to drive anymore. Wow. Yeah. Uh, just take so, a break. You know, it's, it's a kind of a fairly serious thing, yeah. but... Um, I wouldn't consent to my phone being hooked up to the police's... Yeah, it does seem like uh, a lot of extra search and seizure of your goods. But, But, you know... I guess they considered evidence, perhaps. What do you think of this one? Google's revealing some of its, uh, I guess you could say, paranoia. They say reveals its own security regime policy. Trust no network anywhere, ever. Yeah, so this is uh, Google's perimeterless networking. So basically, instead of saying that everything on our land is safe and everything uh, out on the internet is not trusted and we have a little DMZ for servers or whatever, uh, because they're Google, uh, but you know, basically they actually publish this, is called the Beyond Corp Security Policy, and it's basically they publish it in such a way that other people can use it. So it's very informational. That's nice. Uh, but basically, they consider their entire network to be full of nasty things. Mm. And instead, they trust specific people based on a pattern of good behavior good like security behavior and they trust devices uh based on being in a no good state and not exhibiting bad behavior 
So a computer is trusted because it's not scanning other computers and because it's got the latest security patches. And right. if it doesn't, then it doesn't get trusted. And, you know, you end up trusting your administrators and other people that have a good policy. But if the same person keeps falling for a phishing scam, they end up not being trusted and not able to access parts of the network. And they do a lot of talking in the article about tuning it so that you're giving people the access they need but not more and you're not interfering with people's work because uh, you don't want too much pushback from these people. But you want to dial in the security as high as you can. So I haven't had time to digest it all, but it looks very interesting. Yeah, it does. Very much so. Link in the roundup. Okay, I love this next one. We end on an image. It's from the chat room. A wise one. The chat room gets it right every now and then, Alan. Uh, and it reads at top, it doesn't matter how many resources you have. And there is a man peeking over a wall standing on top of you know a pile of, pile of ladders. Just piled there. He only needed one ladder. Right. But if, if you don't know, know how to use them, ladder. it'll it's never be enough. Up. Yep. Yeah. I think it's good. That's, yeah. It's kind of zen, Alan. It's kind of zen. Yeah. I like that. And that's very true when managing your systems, isn't it? It's very true. Uh, all right. That brings us to the end of this week's broadcast of the TechSnap program. Be sure you tune in next week. You might just have something fun and surprising happen. You never know. Now, we won't necessarily be live, but that doesn't mean you won't get a brand new episode of the TechSnap program. We continue on with 100% uptime. Just check the calendar over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Do please send us in your questions. Yes. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. Choose TechSnap from the drop down there. Or you can just send us an email the old-fashioned way or start a thread, TechSnap.reddit.com. Also a great place to submit stories for the roundup or stories that you think should make it into the main show. I think that's everything, right, Alan? Yep. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>